Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Podity. You might have noticed that I kind of switched up the days that I released the podcast a little bit. That's because I've been doing a whole lot of work and a little bit of traveling. Y'all don't care about the work part, but I do want to tell you about the traveling. This month marks the one year anniversary of Oddity Podity. I actually celebrated that milestone by returning to Eureka Springs, which was the site of my very first episode about the 1886 Crescent Hotel. I had intended to do an episode about the adventure that we had while we were there, sort of like a return to Witch Mountain kind of thing, if you will. But instead of taking notes and pictures the whole time so I could produce such an episode, I ended up putting my phone in my pocket and just enjoying the moment. Sometimes you just got to do that. I enjoyed it immensely, but as a result, I wasn't able to come up with an episode in time. But last weekend, I went to Rhode Island with the intention of being a total old person and doing old people stuff like taking in the foliage and eating a ton of fried cod and touring some old historical sites. I did all of that and then some. Plenty of stuff to tell you about. I stayed in an old factory that had been turned into a hotel, visited one of the most opulent mansions in America, and did something that I might have been scared to do, but of course, I did it anyway. I toured Lizzie Borden's house. So if you want to hear all about it, keep listening, because there's nothing I like better than sharing my very own spooky adventures. Last week that I love New England and I meant it. I've been visiting my Yankee friends up there for a couple of decades and I love everything about it, even the cold weather. First off, I'm learning that I need to do background check on every place I travel to before I go because there's history in every corner that I'm missing. For example, when I went to Rhode Island last weekend, we stayed at the NYLO Hotel on Knight Street in Warwick, mostly because it's a Hilton property and we had about 47 billion Hilton points to spend. We just thought we were just staying at a Hilton, no biggie. But as it turns out, the NYLO and the adjacent Pontiac Mills is on the National Historic Registry for a pretty neat reason. In 1851, brothers Robert and Benjamin Knight set up shop in the building. The pair ran a textile mill that produced cotton cloth. When they first started out, they were selling their cotton cloth to local merchants and friends, and they were doing pretty well. One particular shop owner, though, this guy named Rufus Skeel, helped their business by placing especially large orders from the mill due to his very artistic daughter. You see, she took the bolts of cloth that they purchased from Pontiac Mills and painted images of apples and fruit on them. The ones with the apples sold like hotcakes. This gave Robert Knight an idea. He decided to use the apple emblems as the symbol for his trade name, which was Fruit of the Loom. The name was a play on Bible verse Psalm 127.3, which uses the phrase, quote, Fruit of the Loom meaning babies. And who doesn't love babies, right? The only thing better than babies are puppies. And obviously, it was an awesome trade name because you've definitely heard of it. On the opposite end of the spectrum of babies and puppies is one of the worst things, which is war. From 1861 to 1865, during the Civil War, Pontiac Mills hit pause on producing t-shirts and undies and started manufacturing Civil War uniforms for Union soldiers instead. We all love a good Civil War ghost, and there are probably some roaming around on Pontiac Mills today, probably complaining that the length of their pants is too short and asking for an exchange. I have no proof of that. I just made it up, but it could happen. 
After the war, the mill went back to making skivvies, and when trademarks became a thing in August of 1870, the Knight brothers immediately registered theirs, and that same year it was granted. Fruit of the Loom is trademark number 418 and is one of the oldest trademarks in the country. Okay, I know I'm a gigantic dork for thinking all that's cool, but I do. I love historical landmarks and learning about the stories behind them, which is why I do a podcast about history, but also it's about haunt. So let's get on to that. There were two haunted houses that we wanted to visit on our trip to Little Roadie, The Breakers and Lizzie Borden's house. I didn't have the guts to actually stay in Lizzie's house, and the tour made me glad I didn't change my mind and book it anyhow, but more on that later. First, let's talk about the Breakers. You've probably heard of the Vanderbilt family. If not, let me give you their backstory. They were, and still are, kind of a big deal. If you're my age, you remember Gloria Vanderbilt and her must-have blue jeans. Gloria was actually the person who made designer jeans a thing. If you're too young to remember that, you surely know her son, Anderson Cooper. But way back before those two were born, there was a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt I. Cornelius I was born in 1794 on Staten Island in New York to humble parents of Dutch descent. His father was a farmer, and as a young boy, Cornelius helped his dad ferry their produce and groceries between Staten Island and Manhattan. He loved working on the boats, and by the time he was a teenager, he began building his own fleet. Although he had little formal education, he was super smart, and he foresaw ways that he could make a fortune importing goods from all over the place and not just farm groceries to Manhattan. And he was right. Eventually, he would become one of the world's first millionaire shipping magnates. And I mean millionaire back then, which would make him a billionaire today. He was nicknamed the Commodore, and he provided the initial financial gift to found Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, which is why they're called the Commodores. By 1861, Cornelius Vanderbilt was so wealthy that he donated his largest and fastest steamship to the Union Navy to fight in the Civil War. This $1 million ship was used to chase down Confederate forces at sea. Dude was able to just give away a million-dollar ship, which would be more like $34 million today. So that should tell you about how much cash he had to blow. I need you to understand just how wealthy this family was because it's almost beyond comprehension. I know that there are billionaires today, but this family had true wealth in both tangible and an intangible sense. The kind that reaches far and wide like tree roots and brings with it the ability to influence things beneath the surface and out of public eye. They were not only super rich, but super, super powerful. Cornelius had 13 kids, but when he died in 1877, he left 95% of his estate, which was worth about $3 billion of today's dollars, to just one of his children, his son William. Can you imagine how livid the other kids were? Heck, if my mom left me her collection of Franklin Mint collectible plates, my brothers would probably fistfight me for them. I cannot fathom how the rest of the Vanderbilt children felt toward their father and their brother. Probably slightly murderous is my guess, but that's just my guess. The inheritance that the Commodore left for William made him the richest person in America. As it turns out, Cornelius's business sense was right again when he entrusted William with all that money because upon William's death less than nine years later, he had doubled the fortune that his father had left for him. William had nine kids, but he left the bulk of his $6 billion to his two oldest sons, William and Cornelius II. It's Cornelius II that we're going to talk about today. He was Gloria Vanderbilt's granddad and Anderson Cooper's great-granddad. 
But to the rest of America, he was the president of New York Central Railroad and one of the richest men in the country. And since rich men must have summer homes, Cornelius had to have one, of course. A native New Yorker, his family home was a mansion that took up a big chunk of Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, and his office was in Grand Central Station. So he decided that his summer home would be in the fashionable countryside of Newport, Rhode Island. But not just any summer home would do for Cornelius Vanderbilt. In 1885, he purchased what the New York Times described as, quote, unquestionably the most magnificent estate in Newport, end quote. You know, for a summer cottage. Vanderbilt literally called this his summer cottage. Here I am strategizing with eight of my friends to buy a lake house, and this guy's buying a 138,300 square foot castle on the ocean for his summer digs. No, I did not say 3,800 square feet. I said 138,300 square feet. That's like 50 normal people houses. Yeah, the Vanderbilt summer home was bigger than most people's entire subdivision. The home was located at 44 Ochre Point Avenue in Newport, overlooking the ocean. The estate totaled 14 acres, with the home itself covering a whole acre. The entrance featured a 30-foot-high wrought iron gate, and the property was encircled by a 12-foot-high limestone and iron fence. Cornelius snagged the whole thing for about $13 million of today's dollars. He called it the breakers because of how the waves of the Atlantic broke onto the rocks of the cliffs overlooking Easton Bay, which also happened to be his back lawn. By all accounts, the Vanderbilt family loved it. Gee, I wonder why. It's only freaking amazing. And they often stayed there through the summer and spent the holidays there as well, though not all of them got to enjoy the home equally. The Vanderbilt's first daughter, who was named Alice after her mother, died when she was only five and well before the breakers was built. Their son Bill died of typhoid fever the summer before the original breakers burned down. Shortly after the reconstruction of the breakers, son Cornelius III was disinherited for marrying a woman that his parents didn't like. Son Alfred was a passenger on the RMS Lusitania, and he died when it was struck by a German U-boat. Son Reginald, who was the father of Gloria, probably spent a good amount of time at the breakers, but he died young, at the age of 45, of cirrhosis due to alcoholism. It seems like Cornelius, his wife Alice, and their daughters Gladys and Gertrude spent the most time at the Breakers. But they only got to enjoy it for a few years. In November of 1892, while the family was still reeling from the loss of Bill, they decided to stay at the Breakers through the rest of the year. As they were preparing for the Christmas holiday, a fire started in the kitchen, and the whole house burned down. On top of all this misfortune, the home was insured for significantly less than what it was worth. So all in all, 1892 was a rotten year for the Vanderbilts. However, the Vanderbilts were made of cashola. You could probably cut Cornelius's leg and quarters would dribble out instead of blood. So he decided to rebuild his summer cottage, but this time he wanted to make it as fireproof as possible. It would be reinforced with steel, stone, and marble and contained very little wood. He even had the boiler placed in an underground vault buried deep below the front lawn and far away from the house. The Vanderbilts hired famed architect Richard Morris Hunt to design the new Breaker summer cottage. Hunt designed multiple mansions for the Vanderbilts, including their New York City mansion and the Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina. If you haven't heard of the Biltmore, it's the largest privately owned house in the United States, measuring in at a meager 178,000 
926 square feet. It's probably like your whole city. Hunt also designed the entrance facade and the Great Hall of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. He was a big deal. So from 1893 to 1895, the Breakers was Hunt's main gig. And when you see photos of this place, or if you're lucky enough to tour it like I did, it's hard to believe that he completed it in just two years. But something else happened while Hunt was working on the Breakers. He had a teenage daughter, Esther, who was exactly the same age as the Vanderbilt's daughter, Gertrude. The girls were about 18 when they became close friends, and eventually they fell in love. The two girls stole kisses and exchanged steamy love letters, but their affair came to an abrupt end when they were discovered by Gertrude's mother, Alice. Alice promptly forbade the girls from ever seeing each other again. Though Esther pined for Gertrude and continued to write her love letters, Gertrude obeyed her mother and did not see Esther again. In fact, Gertrude went on to have many boyfriends and eventually settled down with one of the richest men in America, Harry Payne Whitney. They had three kids, and she became a celebrated artist. After Harry's death, Gertrude founded the Whitney Museum of American Art. Esther's life after Gertrude was not so happy in comparison. She, too, married in 1901 to a man named George Woolsey. Just eight months after their wedding, she died of a hemorrhage when she miscarried their baby. She was only a few weeks shy of her 26th birthday. This is a tragic ending to a love story that began at the Breakers and an example of how Alice influenced her children's lives. Things were a lot different back then when it came to who you were allowed to love, unfortunately. Alice was right to worry for her daughter's reputation, though, because years later, when Gertrude was fighting for custody of her niece, Gloria, those love letters were used against her in court in what was called the Trial of the Century. Despite this attempt at a smear campaign, Gertrude did eventually win custody of little Gloria. Okay, back to the Breakers, the place where Gertrude spent her summers and possibly the first place she fell in love. Richard Morris Hunt created the interior with marble imported from Italy and Africa. The limited amount of wood that was used in the interior came from all over the world as well. When you first walk into the home, it's like walking into a massive museum. The ceilings look like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, only done in stone mosaic. There's a music room with a grand piano, a billiard room, a, quote, morning room that boasts this huge panoramic view of the ocean. It's just incredible. And a massive library with a painting of Alice, Gladys, and Gertrude in the library. It's a painting of the library of the ladies in the library. It's like a matrix painting. Also, there's this ginormous marble fireplace in every room. So many, it's overwhelming. The fireplaces are taller than me, and each individual room is about the size of my entire house. Where most people have a storage closet beneath their staircase, the Vanderbilts have Italian marble fountains. Yeah, it's like that. But on the second floor, it's a totally different story. This is where the family's bedrooms are located. It's a strange thing because although each room is really, really large, the beds are tiny, like no larger than full size in each one. The bedrooms that are accessible to the public are Cornelius's, Alice's, Gertrude's, and her sister Gladys's. Each bedroom has its own connected bathroom, which was very unusual at the time. Heck, it's kind of unheard of today for everyone to have their very own bathroom, but I mean, it wasn't typical for all homes to have indoor bathrooms in general back then, much less more than one. But not only did every Vanderbilt have their own private bathroom, each one was equipped with a water closet, a soaker tub, and a bidet. Trey Fancy. 
Alice Vanderbilt liked to change clothes around seven times per day. So her closets had corridors between the walls so that the maids could bring her dresses to her dressing room without fear of being seen by guests. That's right, the help was expected to not be seen. While the second floor was made up of those four enormous bedrooms, bathrooms, dressing rooms, secret closets, and a couple of guest rooms, the third floor was another different story. It was just as ginormous, but instead of some huge bedrooms, bathrooms, and miniature beds, the space was broken up into some 70 bedrooms where the servants slept. So while the Vanderbilts rolled all around in thousands of square feet on the second floor, the staff was packed up like sardines just one floor above them. I wondered if the staff who stayed behind while the family was in the city ever snuck down to the second floor and secretly slept in their beds while they were gone. That's what I would have done if I worked there, and I'm sure someone would have ratted me out and I'd have been beaten to death in the town square for the infraction. Anyway, the Vanderbilts did not get to enjoy their summers in this meager little cottage as a family for very long. After only four short years of summer splendor, Cornelius had a stroke and died in 1899. He was only 55 years old. He left the breakers to his wife, Alice, and she managed to outlive him by 35 years and died at the age of 89 in 1934. She left the breakers to her youngest daughter, Gladys, mostly because Gladys had married a foreign royal and she lacked American property, and also because Gladys had always loved the breakers and Gertrude wasn't interested in it. However, people say that Alice loved it so much that after her death, she returned to the Breakers to spend her eternity there. Over the years, the ghost of Alice Vanderbilt has been sighted by family, servants, and visitors. She doesn't sound like she's a scary ghost, though. Witnesses say that she's as charming and quiet in death as she was in life, a very proper ghost who stays mostly in her second-floor bedroom. However, she has been spotted in the library in the music room, and roaming the grounds as well. And those who have seen her say that you know immediately who she is because she's dressed in one of her dozens of Victorian period dresses and not stretch pants and sweatshirts like the rest of us modern-day scabs wear. Plenty of paranormal investigators have pursued her ghost, but the Vanderbilt family will not allow it in the home. It's said that they do not want to disturb her ghost. You see, the Vanderbilt family is still kind of there. In 1948, Gladys leased the property to the Preservation Society of Newport County for $1 per year. After she died, her daughter Sylvia sold the home to the Preservation Society for $365,000, which would be about $2.4 million today. Although she straight up sold the home, Sylvia struck a golden goose egg of a deal. She stipulated with the sale that she would be able to live there forever. So she sold the home but she still got to live there until she died in 1998. And then when that happened, the Preservation Society went ahead and agreed to allow the family to continue to live on the third floor, which is not open to the public. But like I said, there's 70 bedrooms up there, so plenty of space for everyone to hang out. While I was stirring this home, the third floor was roped off, and some squirrely people still tried to nose their way back there, but they were promptly yelled at for it. And no, it wasn't me, I promise. The Breakers is Rhode Island's most visited attraction, drawing in approximately 450,000 visitors annually, so like a half a million people a year. Seriously, can you imagine the Vanderbilts trying to enjoy the summer like one of the kids from the Flowers in the Attic up there while thousands of people putter around downstairs? Well, I imagine it's still pretty freaking awesome because the Breakers is beyond fabulous. Seriously, check out our Instagram for photos or Google it because you really have to see it to understand just how absurd it is. 
Also, despite thousands of people puttering around in it, the house definitely feels haunted. Even though it's massive and airy, there is a feel of sadness and loss attached to it. In fact, I was so depressed after I left that I had to go to a place called the Brick Alley Pub. Okay, I wasn't depressed. I just really wanted a drink and some fried cod. The bus driver suggested it, and he was so, so right. We had all the fried cod, lobster rolls, and way too many espresso martinis. It was perfect. The next day, we went about a half an hour in the opposite direction to Fall River, Massachusetts. If you'll recall, that is the site of one of America's most infamous murders. After I did the episode on Lizzie Borden a few weeks ago, I was surprised to learn how many people have never heard of her. I mean, she hacked her dad and stepmom to death and she got away with it. I mean, allegedly. I did do an episode over how she didn't do it, after all, but even I wasn't convinced. I was even less convinced after I toured the house because logistically it doesn't make sense that anyone else could have done it. If you want a full rundown of the murders, listen to the Lizzie Borden episode, but as a brief review... On August 4, 1892, Andrew and Abby Borden were found hacked to death in their home. Lizzie discovered her father, Andrew, in a pool of blood on the living room couch. His face was nearly split in two. Abby was upstairs, her head smashed to pieces. Both had been struck more than a dozen times, each with the sharp side of an axe. It was later determined that Abby had been killed more than two hours before Andrew, so if a stranger had done it, they would have had to hide and lie in wait to kill Andrew, all while Lizzie and the maid Bridget did chores all around the house. Law enforcement didn't believe that was plausible, but a jury did, and Lizzie went free. She sold the family home and moved to a fancier house in town. Today, that house is a museum as well as a bed and breakfast that you can spend the night in. I can tell you for sure that I definitely will not spend the night there. I know I've said that before, but I really mean it this time. It has a very oppressive air to it. It's small and cramped as well. I can see why Lizzie was aggravated with her father for not moving them to a bigger home, especially after experiencing the massive grandeur of the breakers. The Bordens were nowhere near the Vanderbilts in terms of wealth, but they definitely could have afforded a bigger home because at the time they were millionaires of their time. We were able to explore every inch of the house, including the living room where Andrew's still bleeding body was found, complete with a replica of the couch that he lay on. We were told that it was just a replica and not the actual couch. However, Andrew's other daughter, Emma, was as much of a skinflint as he had been, and she had not thrown out the murder couch. She just had it reupholstered, so the murder couch might be still floating around out there somewhere. We also toured the bedroom where Abby was murdered. It's set up exactly as it was on the day of the killings, with the bed right where it was where her body was found next to, and you can sleep there. Hell to the no. Thanks anyway. I can't even explain how creepy and weird it was. The little hairs on the back of my neck stood up, as they did when we entered the topmost floor where the maid Bridget had napped on her bed while her employers were being hacked to death. But the creepiest part of the tour was in the basement. This was where Lizzie was caught soaking bloody garments in water on the night following the murders. She explained this away by saying that she got in her period, and the wimpy Victorian-era police scurried away when they heard this, and they didn't question her again. I do not understand the Victorians. I mean, they were fine taking copious pictures of two bloody chopped-up bodies and fine with removing the Borden's heads boiling their skin off and presenting their skulls at the murder trial, but they dang near fainted when a woman mentioned her period. 
Anyway, Lizzie had been soaking those bloody garments in a pot and stirring it with a wooden paddle. A police guarding the home saw her doing this through the window in the basement. There she stood, the pot sitting up on a riser in an alcove, stirring and stirring, trying to wash away the evidence. Today, a replica of that pot sits inside the alcove. And when you take a photo of it with a flash on, a face appears on the wall. It looks like a woman crying. The tour guide said that over the years, the area has been sandblasted and filed down, but the face continues to appear. No amount of sanding or painting over it can make it go away. I'll post a photo that I took of it on our Instagram too, so you can see what I'm talking about. I took a ton of photos, and in two of the bedrooms, there's what looks like an apparition hovering over the bed, but Neil said it's just the sunlight coming through the window, and I can see where he might be right. Besides that and the face in the basement, I didn't see any ghosts, but I did the tour at noon at the height of daylight, and it was one of the weirdest, spookiest places that I've ever been in, and I've been in a lot of weird, spooky places. Oddly enough, though, I had nightmares about the breakers that weekend and not of the Lizzie Board murder house. Go figure. I wish I'd had more time to visit all the haunted places in Rhode Island and the surrounding area because there are a ton of them. I hope to go back again next year and check out the foliage again like the elderly that I am. So if any of y'all have any spooky Rhode Island haunted stories, shoot me a message. I'd love to hear about them. As always, thank you for spending your time with me today. Since it's our one-year anniversary, I'm going to take a short one-week break to catch up and get some stuff ready to knock your socks off for next year. So, I hope you'll come back and see me two weeks from now, same time, same place, for a little more history and a little more haunt. I'll see you then.